Um, if you would like to turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, we're continuing to work our way through the book. Um, and the, the Bible reading on the screen behind me is not a typo. Um, we are covering a lot of ground this morning, apologies, from chapter 6 until chapter 11. Um, but as you can guess, if I were to read all that out, I would be completely hoarse by the end of the service. So we're going to be reading a bit out from the start, and then we're going to be jumping our way through, and then we're going to be reading a bit out from the end. So it's not going to be one massive chunk. Um, but we are going to be going quite quickly, so if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you grab one or open one up on your phone, and we're going to start at Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. Let's hear God speak to us. And on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded them. And then, if you look, one of the interesting things to note about the, the, the ten plagues of Egypt is that, interestingly, the word plague literally wouldn't, will not be used until we get into chapter 11 with the death of the firstborn. And so this morning, I'm going to try and use the language as much as I can, but because we're brought up with the 10 plagues so much, it's so hard for me to slip out of it. There's actually 11 signs and wonders. If you look down with me, just whenever God was describing that, in verse 4, um, or sorry, verse three, sorry, apologies. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. In verse three, you'll note that. So these are not necessarily all plagues, but multiple signs of wonders. And there's actually probably 11 of them if you include the staff, because there's a bit of a rubric that begins to happen. And as we work our way through these next few chapters, you're gonna see this rubric at work. So we start off, after Moses and Aaron have been told to go into the king's presence, demand to let their people go, they give their first sign and wonder, which is Aaron's staff, which we read about in verse 9. Whenever he goes to have this proving miracle, he throws down the staff and it eats, turns into a snake, and it eats the other snakes of the other sorcerers or Pharaoh's court. But it ends with this, what will become a very familiar little phrase in verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then we get to the second sign, which is the river of blood, where Moses and Aaron go into the court of Pharaoh and say, let our people go or we will turn the whole of the Nile to blood. And we read that Pharaoh once again ignores them and the river turns to blood. And then, as we then look down, um, the same thing happens again, where we read in verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened 
and he would not, would not listen to them. And then we get to the next sign, the frogs that come afterwards, which after uh, Pharaoh does go to Moses and Aaron and plague them or plead for them, sorry, to take away the frogs that have come upon the land of Egypt. But the same thing happens again as we read in verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then we have the next plague, which is gnats, which are little flies that will bite at you, kind of like clegs. Um, And it ends in that familiar rubric. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then we have another plague, a plague of flies. And it ends in verse 32 of chapter 8. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And then we enter into another plague, a plague of livestock. This is, up until now, they've been a bit of a nuisance, but this is the first one that will really begin to, to hurt and to sting and uh, cost the kingdom financially as their livestock begin to die. What happens? Verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the boils come, boils so painful that the people are not able to stand. And we read in verse 12, something slightly different, but along the same lines, and in some ways scarier than what we've read before. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then with the plague of heel. The heel is the first plague where we read about people being struck down and killed by the heel that's coming out of the sky and it kills livestock and it flattens crops. And at the end of all this, Moses and Aaron are thinking, well, will you let us go? And we know the response. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And then we have the plague of locusts, locusts which... Um, still go around the world today. Like there was a, a locust swarm in Kenya in 2020 that wiped out a huge amount of crops. They threatened this swarm of locusts to come into the land of Egypt if they don't let the people go. What happens? We all know Pharaoh doesn't let them go. And in verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people go. And then we see the penultimate sign, the sign of darkness. But even that doesn't budge in verse 27, but the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart and would not let him go. And then we end with the final plague. And this is the plague, that the, this is the only time the word plague is used in these chapters of, in the Hebrew. Whenever the first death of the firstborn of all of Egypt is threatened. And you would think at this stage, Pharaoh has seen sign after sign after sign after sign after sign. And here he is finally with one grave threat in a patriarchal society that emphasizes passing on and leaving your legacy through your first male heir. With that threat hanging over him, you would think something would change. But yet, as we read in the final verse of the chapter, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the people of Israel go out from this land. Amen. As I said, we're, we're going to be covering a lot of ground, but hopefully you will see that there's a bit of a pattern. Moses and Pharaoh, or Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh. They ask to let their people go. If you don't let us go, this plague will come. Pharaoh generally is like, well, I don't care. 
sends them out, the plague comes, and we read Pharaoh hardens his heart more and more and more. And there's a lot going on, but one of the things that I think just is interesting to think about is why on earth would God send Moses to try and convince somebody who he knew would not be convinced? Because we read all the way back in chapter 7, at the very, very start of all this, that God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You know, he says it in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. Well, what is the point in sending Moses and Aaron to somebody who will not listen? Well, that gets picked up in verse 5, whenever it says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is what I was trying to get across to the boys and girls. The point of these signs is not for us to be, weren't these wonderful signs of power, but they point to who the true God is, who the true person in control of this situation is. I just want to look at this in three simple ways this morning, which is I want to look at the plagues. And I know, there, I know I've called them signs and wonders and said they aren't technically plagues, but otherwise I couldn't get three Ps this morning. Um, I want to look at the plagues, the Pharaoh, and then look at Passover, the plagues, the Pharaoh, and Passover. So what's going on with these plagues? Well, what's going on with these plagues is bit by bit, God is demonstrating that Pharaoh, who is the most powerful person in all of the ancient world, this is the guy who is in charge of the biggest army and the largest economy at this period in history. Can you imagine what a power trip that would be? And not only that, your people who are in your country view you as a deity, now, our politics is bad and can be narcissistic at times, but it has not quite got to that level. But you can imagine the humbling that it would take for this great empire to be brought down by what is effectively a enslaved people within them. So God goes about demonstrating time and time again through all of these powerful, miraculous signs, they are not in control. He is. Now, you might be thinking... you. I would say many of you are very familiar with these passages. This, these Bible passages are in every children's storybook Bible you will encounter because they're so visual and so graphic, and I'm sure we know them all. And there could be a little part of us that is tempted to think that this is just fairy tale. But what I want to try and get across to you this morning is that these are real events that happened in the ancient Near East in and around this time. There's one scholar... Um, uh, Kerry Myers, who's a professor at Duke University, who published a really interesting book on this. And she kind of made a comment on these plagues, saying that examining the narratives in light of geographical, microbiological, climactic, and medical data, it leaves little doubt that the biblical description represents salient aspects of well-known occurrences of pestilence and disease in northeastern Africa. And what she's meaning by that is that all of the signs that you read about in this passage they are the sort of thing that you would expect to see in the ancient uh, kind of northeastern part of Africa. However, never do you see them coming with all quick succession. Never do you see them all coming all at once. And what's interesting is the second sign, the second sign that we're given, which is the river of blood. You might say, well, how often does that happen in the ancient Near East? Um, but it's interesting to note that most scholars have come to agree that the river of blood isn't maybe like a literal river of blood, like a blood of black pudding, but it's rather almost the terminology that we would use to describe a blood moon. 
Like none of us think whenever we hear of a blood moon that the moon's literally made of blood. And the ancient Egyptians would have had a similar idea. Like it's not that the river literally is blood. It's rather it turns to a blood color. And one of the reasons I want to emphasize that is that it's interesting to note that even though this river turns to blood for seven days, we don't read of anybody dying until the plague with the heel. So the odds are nobody died. And I feel that if this river was going to turn to blood, we would expect to read of some fatalities in this first sign or the second sign, but we don't read of any. And so it's probably something that they would have been used to. And reading in the ancient accounts, what they would often happen in the springtime is there, there would be great floods that would happen and they would cause the, the banks of the Nile to swell and a whole pile of sediment and of kind of putrid things would get swept up into the river so that the river water was no longer drinkable and they would then have to go dig wells to try and get their water. It was an occurrence that they were used to. It was an irregular one, but it was an occurrence we were, they were used to. If you get kind of akin to when it snows here, everybody freaks out. We've seen it before, but we're still terrified of it whenever we encounter it. That was sort of the idea. And also whenever the Nile did this and became this great, huge thing, swirling, filled with all sorts of horrible mucks and pieces of sediment, they would say it was a bad omen for the things that would come later because often that would mean crops would fail, often that would mean that livestock would get sick and die, and it was seen as a bad omen of things to come. And so I think it's poignant that this is one of the, the first signs that we see that goes to all of the people of Egypt. It's something that is an omen in their society, warning them of what is about to happen in the weeks ahead. And as we read, these signs go on and on. But they also demonstrate God's power, not just over the great Nile that is the lifeblood of Egypt, but also over the pantheon of Egyptian deities. Um, the Egyptian god who's in charge of the Nile, um, I lost this, in it, called Happy. Um, he is meant to be the god who's able to control the Nile, be one of the more powerful gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And here Yahweh is just demonstrating that he has power even over that. And in the sign of the frog, the frogs, we might find that a little strange, but um, there was an Egyptian goddess called Hecat. And Hecat, whenever she would have been depicted, would have been depicted as a frog. And so God is showing that, well, look, if you have this God who's made of frogs, look what I can do. And then whenever you get to the penultimate sign, which is the darkness, one of the most powerful gods and the most prominent gods in all of the Egyptian pantheon would have been the god Ray, which I always think is a funny name for a god. It's kind of like you expect there to be another god called Ian. Um, uh, but Ray is shown to be completely worthless because he is the one who causes the sun to rise. And here is the God of the Israelites, this enslaved people, who is able to stop him at the word of one of his people. You know, this is what God is slowly beginning to undermine, the, the geographical things that have made Egypt possible, the gods that they worship. And then bit by bit, can you imagine the chaos that would have been taking place in Egypt as these signs come one after the other? There is an, a bit of an escalation as you read through it. You have the river of blood, which is a bad omen to start off with. You then end up, end up having the, the various kind of masses of animals, of frogs and gnats and flies, which would have been a nuisance, but what you could have lived with. Um, but you see, bit by bit, it gets worse and worse. In, verse, in chapter 9, whenever the livestock begin to die and suddenly this is beginning to hit them economically, the boils come that are so fierce, people can't stand. 
And you can imagine what that would do if everyone you know is sick. We've just come out of a pandemic. Can you imagine what that would have been like if we all had boils instead of a cough? Um, so you're talking that sort of amount of pain and suffering. And then the heal comes. And we, we get heal, like we're not adverse to it. But heal that is that heal that you see on like nature documentaries that knocks people unconscious and kills them and kills livestock and knocks down fields. And bit by bit it escalates and the gnats come. And whatever crops haven't been knocked down by the heels, suddenly locusts come and feast upon it. And so you're left with a field crop and probably famine for the next year. And then finally you get to the, the sign that is the most terrifying one, which is the death of the firstborn. And bit by bit the pressure has been ramping up on Pharaoh. You know, slowly he is the man who's meant to be in charge. He's the man in charge of the biggest empire in all the world. And it's chaos in his country. And he can do nothing to stop it. And these two old geezers who are in their 80s are showing him to be a clown. As he begins to see, he has no control over the situation. And do you really think that by the time we got to the, the 11th sign that these guys have performed in front of him, he would have been thinking, nah, don't believe you can do it. You know, if you think of all of the things that he has seen up until now, the staff you could maybe think was a coincidence because you've got sorcerers who can do it too. The river you thought, well, we've seen that before. But bit by bit, these things are happening again and again and again. And yet we get to the end of this passage and we think, surely he would realize. Surely he would think. Surely he would believe that God is able to do this and wouldn't mess about with them as much anymore. And yet it's that little phrase that we read time and time again. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And that is what the plagues show us, a Pharaoh who's hardening his heart. You've maybe noticed that there's a bit of a tension going on here. God promises that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. We read a few verses where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. We read again that Pharaoh goes back to having his heart, heart hardened by God. And so there may be some of you here who are thinking a bit uncomfortable, but going, well, what does that mean for human freedom? What does that mean for God's sovereignty? What does that mean about our own ability to choose God, our own ability to repent? Is it all us or is it all God? And if you want to talk about that, chat to me afterwards and we can talk about Aristotelian causality and all of that sort of fun stuff. But I feel that would put most of you to sleep. So I'm not going to talk about it, but feel free to grab me and chat about it if you think. I think overall, though, there's one pattern that we can notice that is definitely true, nonetheless, of this passage, which is that Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens those who are hardening themselves against him. It's not one or the other, it's a little bit of both. It's a bit of, of the Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening it for him after that. And I wonder, does that scare you? Does that scare you? Are you hardening yourself against God this morning? You know, we have this great idea that's a hangover from the Enlightenment that we are rational people and before we make a decision, you know, we sit down with the evidence and we examine it to see what's the most logical one and then go with that. Science and psychological data showing that that's completely untrue. We are led mostly by our feelings and by what's going to cost us the least to make our life most comfortable. We are not rational, autonomous beings. 
And so I ask you, are you hardening yourself against God this morning? And you may have all sorts of things you tell yourself as a way of keeping him at arm's length, of holding him back a wee bit, of thinking, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. Or, oh, well, you know, I'll deal with it whenever I'm older. Or, oh, it's good for the kids to get morals, but I'll just leave it. Are you hardening yourself against the God who hardens? C.S. Lewis says in one of his books that, you know, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thine will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. Because there comes a point where whenever we are looking after ourselves and after our own self-interests, God gives us exactly what we're looking for which is so often a shallow and empty and vapid existence, devoid of the hope that he offers us. And so I ask you this morning, if you have been sitting in church for years or you've been dragged here against your will by friends and family, perhaps you've heard the gospel presented before, you've heard church ministers speak before, and you've held it at arm's length, I ask you, are you hardening yourself against God in the same way that Pharaoh is trying to do? There was a great Baptist preacher, um, Charles Spurgeon, who said this in one of his sermons. He said, forget Pharaoh and only think of yourself, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself with the thorn-crowned head and the pierced hand stand by your pew and looking down into your soul, say in his matchless tone of music, the music of a heart of love, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? There's a great message of hope that is held out to us through the scriptures and in the Bible of a God who will give us everything that he can give us, every spiritual blessing, if we would but give in and let him in, stop hardening ourselves against him. And so my appeal to you this morning is stop hardening yourself. Let him in. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time as well and you feel, well, you know, like I am trying to let him in. And there's a couple of things that we can take away as well if, if you're, that are just simple side notes from this. The first one is that you're probably very aware that there are friends of family of yours who you have tried to share the gospel with many, many times. You have forced them to go to as many Christian things as you can get them to and it doesn't seem to have any impact. And what this passage shows us is that there is no silver bullet for sharing our faith. There is no magic quick fix. There is no easy answer. But rather there is trusting that we have a God who can overcome even the greatest barrier and the greatest hurdle and enter into somebody's life. And that ought to drive us to pray. That ought to drive us to pray. So I encourage you, if you have friends or family like I do who you pray or who you would long to see come to know Jesus, Pray for them and pray for them regularly. Um, it is one of the most essential and important things we can do because we have a God who can overcome the greatest empires of the world, who can overcome the pantheon of gods of Egypt, and who can overcome stubborn and resistant hearts by his grace. So let's pray that we would see that happen. Finally, uh, what about Passover? I can't, I, can't, I can't go through this and not talk about Passover. I'm so sorry. 
Do you see how this is a signpost leading us to Jesus? We have a king who is a pathetic excuse of a king who will see his people suffer and die because of his own stubbornness so that he can hold some sense of pride and some empty sense of control. And it will cost him everything, even his son. And yet we have a king who holds nothing back, who gives us his only son, not in a ritualistic form of just getting his own ego stroked, but a way of seeing those in his kingdom expanded, not through force or coercion, but through wonderful acts of grace and hope. A king who will spare people by giving up his one and only son as the wonderful lamb who will die on behalf of us so that we do not bear the punishment. A king who will see the plagues born upon his own son so that his own people do not experience the plagues that come as a result of sin. We have a God who is gracious and loving and who this passage is crying out for you to know this morning. I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of this passage that you've given us wonderful hope through your son, Jesus. Lord, if we're hard to you this morning, soften our hearts, we ask. If we're resisting you, overcome our own stubborn wills. And Lord, help us enter into the real promises you've given us see them as weightier than gold. Father, would we be moved deeply by you this morning? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.